0: I commend this congregation in general for your willingness and your love to worship the Lord Jehovah and his son Jesus Christ. Please turn for an opening passage of scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. My subject matter is simple and it is one. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ deserves your best. The king of that kingdom deserves your best. And I'd like to start with this passage so that we have the balance that we ought to have. Some only want the joy. Some think there's some special merit in only the fear that we owe the Lord. We want them both. And I want to use this passage to show you the Apostle Paul, who was the happiest man you'll ever meet, and yet who trembled before God, though he was such a faithful Apostle and had labored more abundantly than all his other Apostles. Let me read to you verses 9 down through 15. I know that it's seven verses, but please follow along. And notice that Paul will appeal to the terror of the Lord... And then Paul will appeal to the love of the Lord. And it is the terror of the Lord that should persuade us. And it is the love of the Lord that should constrain us. And so we want to leave this place today terrified to be persuaded that his kingdom deserves our best. And we want to leave this place today knowing that he loves us constrained by love, to give him our best. And it's the combination that we want. It's the combination that drove Paul. And if you think your pastor a little mad this morning, then you'll understand and appreciate the middle verses of these seven because the Apostle Paul was considered mad, even by believers, because there's precious few in the history of the world that were ever like him. Verse 9, Wherefore we labor, Paul and his fellow apostles and fellow ministers. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart, For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Amen Amen and amen. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's rejoice together that we are part of a kingdom this morning and that we have a great and a glorious king who died for his enemies to deliver them from the palace of the strong man as we studied last Lord's Day. And yet... He places upon us an obligation and a burden and a duty to serve that kingdom with all our might. We owe it to him by love, and we owe it to him by terror. It should persuade us, and it should constrain us. And it's the combination of the two that makes the scriptural sense. It's rejoicing with trembling that the Bible describes, and so Paul described it that way himself. We are not a church for doing a Sunday religious thing to look or feel better personally or socially. God chose us to be citizens of his son's kingdom in an awesome drama of conflict and total final victory. And you have been chosen main players by being citizens of his kingdom. That is, those of you that are born again regenerate children of God and those of you that live like it. Because if both of those aren't true of you, you are an offense to Jesus Christ, and you are a blot in his kingdom. You're not really in it at all. You're just warming foam rubber on a pew, and the Lord Jesus Christ would say to you, as was read from Matthew 22, Friend, where's your wedding garment? And he was speechless, just like you would be, and just like you will be. Many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel calls fish bad and good, guests good and bad, to the marriage supper. And the marriage supper is not the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. The marriage supper is what's going on right now in this place. Right. And that is coming together in intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ around his gospel. Right. Last Lord's Day, we considered the strong man and the stronger man, and we reveled in it as we came to the Lord's table. Six weeks ago, I addressed the men of this church to be keepers of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I made appeal to you men to be like Itte the Gittite, Who led 600 Gittites, mercenaries, from the city of Gath, of the Philistines, the hometown of Goliath. Why would 600 Gittites follow David when he had killed their champion? Why would they give up their language, their religion, their friends, their family, and their homes to go follow David and live in Jerusalem? As the Lord liveth, our souls will be with you in life or in death. And you think so help me God's impressive? I challenged you men to be keepers of this kingdom. Let's weed out the fairies that sneak in among us. You're strangers and pilgrims in America, my brethren. You can put your hand on your heart if you do. I don't. Doesn't mean squat to me. Excuse my language if that offends you. That flag is not all that impressive to me. I serve a king far above this country. I am thankful for America. I'm thankful for America because it's allowed gospel preachers to preach. I'm not thankful for America because men go and die for America. Men go and die for every flag of every color of every nation that's ever existed in the history of this world. Please understand that. Please understand that the Japanese love their flag and love their country and love their military as much or more than the United States does theirs. That's not what makes a nation great. I don't care what Adam Smith wrote about the greatness or the wealth of nations. I know what the Bible says. God raises up one nation and puts down another. The greatness of a nation is because this nation has allowed the gospel to be preached in it so that the kingdom of Jesus Christ has been more present here than any other nation on earth, and that's what's made America great. We're strangers and pilgrims here. The Bible tells us that strangers means our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on earth, at least the citizenship that counts. Pilgrims mean we're on a journey that this nation is just a thing that we're passing through for a few years on our way to a holy nation. But if the truth be told, we're not going to a holy nation, we're already part of a holy nation, and that holy nation is not the United States of America. God forbid! This nation is the most God-hating nation on earth for the amount of knowledge and truth that was given to it. Other nations were never given any. How can you hold them responsible? All they had was the natural creation. This country was given the word of God and pulpits on every corner that preached it. This nation has on its coin, in God we trust. This nation says in its pledge, "Under one nation under God. And that God is the Judaic, as they call it. To us, it's the Bible God Jehovah, because that's the God that was worshipped in the early days of this country. But we're strangers and pilgrims here because we worship in a kingdom that has a king different than President Obama. Just like the Thessalonians in Thessalonica worshipped a king that was different than Caesar. And those then didn't like their lack of nationalistic spirit, and so they tried to kill the Thessalonians for saying that there was another king instead of Caesar. We, the Gentiles... The heathen of the Bible are incredibly blessed to have the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The president of our country, President Barack Obama, is a powerful earthly leader, but he is only Jesus Christ's pawn for the present time. We worship a king far greater than him, and I want to excite you with the task at hand. The world doesn't know the incredible importance of our assemblies, just like it didn't know the glorious presence of the Son of God in the nation of Israel. They could see red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Jesus told them that. Red sky at night, sailors delight. He said you can tell the weather that's coming, but you can't tell that the Son of God is here. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that the wisdom of this world amounts to nothing. Because the princes of this world couldn't figure out that the Lord of glory was among them. They wouldn't have touched him if they'd have known who he was, and they don't know who you are. Let's revel today in the kingdom that we have. I am thankful for this nation for the privilege that it allows unwillingly to the preaching of the gospel. It has to, at the present time. It may not have to tomorrow. Our legislators and our executive office and our judicial branch hate most everything we stand for except that we preach, God bless the IRS. They hate the righteousness of the Bible. They despise it. They mock it. They defend every form of perverse profanity that's opposed to it. Freedom of speech was never intended by our founding fathers to defend Hollywood and the corruption that comes out of that cesspool. But I'm not here to preach about the politics of America because who cares? America is such a pitiful little small nothing nation that it's not even referenced in the Bible indirectly because it has no effect on the affairs of the world at all. First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. We have many passages of Scripture we could turn to. There's many passages of Scripture we will turn to. And I hope that turning and reading here a little and there a little does not frustrate you, but rather causes you joy. Amen. The passages that we have had read to us already this morning, which are at least seven, bless my heart and they should have blessed your heart. Amen. 1 Chronicles 29, David has been preparing with all his might to pay for the most glorious temple Israel had ever had. And Solomon was going to build it, and here's what he had to say in verse 10. And remember, the theme is the kingdom of God, so my references are going to be to the kingdom and its king. 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 10, Wherefore, David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, Here's David at his best. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Words like that, inspired by God, through a sinful man like David, should encourage you, should provoke you, should convict you, should excite you. Are you a man like that? Do you worship God like this? Do you appreciate words like this? Oh, the king is God Jehovah. He's king over all. Look at Psalm chapter 10, the 10th Psalm. How long is God king? We just read that he's king overall, and I could multiply that fact from the pages of Scripture over and over, but let's move on. We have lots of ground to cover if the Lord will help us. The 10th Psalm. Psalm 10 and verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Look at 29 and verse 10. The 29th Psalm and the 10th verse. The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. Nice. So we have a king that is over all, and we have a king that is king forever. His dominion, as Nebuchadnezzar would say of the king that was his king, is everlasting. Everlasting. Nebuchadnezzar was a king of kings himself because God said he was. But Nebuchadnezzar learned both facts about the God we worship, that he's a king over all and that he's a king forever. But I want to tell you something, brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ is now king over God's kingdom. God has given authority and rule over everything in his kingdom to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a stupendous fact. This is a political fact that ought to get your attention far more than anything about the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. When I am forced to choose between this country and any other country, I will be loyal to the United States of America. But when it comes to the pagan philosophy and the wicked morality, lack of immorality... And the profanity of this country, I am the Lord's. Right. My allegiance is to his kingdom. I have to live here. I'm thankful to live here. Because God is still preserving enough liberties in this country for the furtherance of his gospel. First Corinthians 15, God has appointed a man over his kingdom. Amen. And that man is the man Christ Jesus. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 25, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. God the Father is going to put every single enemy in this universe under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Do you understand what great power it took to raise the Lord Jesus Christ's dead body? from the grave it's the same power that it took to cause you to believe the gospel that i'm telling you right now and god is doing things in verses 19 through 23 for his son notice the power in verse 20 that he wrought in christ when he raised him from the dead and where did he put him he set him at his own right hand in ephesians 1:22 in the heavenly places god has raised up a man the man jesus of nazareth born to a virgin named mary Supposed to be the son of Joseph. Two lineages in the Bible. Joseph's in Matthew 1. Mary's in Luke 3. This man, Christ Jesus, sits at God's right hand. He is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But notice where he is now seated. He was raised from the dead and set at God's right hand in the heavenly places. And here's how his position is described. Verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. The word king and the word kingdom are not used here, but there is no passage that is speaking more to the theme of the king and his kingdom. Jesus Christ is reigning over all for the benefit of his church. We are the citizens of his kingdom, and he is king and has this kind of authority for our protection, our blessing. Our glory and our future together. We are His body and we are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Jesus Christ has the ultimate authority of the universe, but He's incomplete without you and me. What a statement is found there in that 23rd verse. What a description of His promotion by God in verses 21 and 22. Now that's the Lord Jesus Christ over all things, because verse 22 said, God hath put all things under his feet. So he's king over all. Well, how long is this kingdom going to last? Where do you want to go? How about Isaiah chapter 9? This is our king. We serve a real king. This is not a dry theological subject that belongs on the dusty shelf of a monastery somewhere or a seminary. This is a real fact about a real kingdom and a real king that ought to change your life. You ought to be persuaded by his terror, and you ought to be constrained by his love. He is a terrible king, and he's terrible to the kings of the earth. But he's our loving father and our loving brother and our savior. And we want both today. And we want to serve him better than we ever have before. Isaiah 9, 6 is a popular verse. It's too bad that seven isn't as popular. But we'll read them both. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the government I care about the most. It's the government I want you to care about the most. Most meaning 99.9873%. Compared to the remaining percentage, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, And peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, the futurists, the premillennialists and others who are looking for this, some, this future millennial kingdom. They love the 6th verse, but they never quote the 7th verse. Because the 7th verse is in conjunction with the 6th verse, and it's in the 6th verse where the government of the Lord Jesus Christ is first mentioned, and the extent of that government in its geographical spread and in its duration of time is in the 7th verse, and it's by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The Lord Jesus Christ has a kingdom. It's the kingdom of his father David. It's the Old Testament Israel. It's the Old Testament Israel modified into a spiritual kingdom of the New Testament. We are, as Gentiles, part of the kingdom of David. We just read it. It was a few months ago that I preached to you on a Wednesday evening from Acts chapter 15. The most important verse in the Bible to dispensationalists, and it teaches the opposite of what they wish it taught. It says that we, by the conversion of the gospel beginning with the household of Cornelius was God bringing Gentiles into the kingdom of David and rebuilding that kingdom. That kingdom that dominated this known world that kingdom that stretched from the Euphrates to the Nile and David put forts up and collected tribute from the nations that bordered that large piece of property, far larger than that little tiny minuscule Israel today is our kingdom. But instead of David being on the throne, it's the son of David. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of it being a physical kingdom with an earthly army, it's an invisible spiritual kingdom with a much larger army. And the army is the angels of the hosts of God. And there are defenders. And He is the Lord of hosts. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. Psalm 24. I believe, I hope, a week later you still love it, brother. I think so. I know so about you. Oh, thank you, Lord, for putting us in such a kingdom. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he spent 40 days showing himself alive by many infallible proofs. And then he ascended up into heaven. You can see him leaving this earth's atmosphere in Acts chapter 1. You can see him arriving in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. When he approaches God on his throne and takes a book out of his hand that no other man could touch. And John was there weeping because there was no man found able to take that book out of the hand of God on the throne. But the Lord Jesus Christ took it and began ripping off the seals of judgment on this planet. And then the choirs of heaven burst into the praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Incredible. That's our king. You think the inauguration that takes place in Washington is impressive? I'm sorry that you've been so deprived in your life. I do believe in civil authority, and you've never sat under a pastor that's preached it harder than this one. But he is but a pawn and a puppet in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ would put the best that we could ever put together in this world in the absolute shade of darkness. Men fall. Men fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, though they knew him personally for years as dead. Nobody's ever fallen to their feet as dead in front of our present president or any former president. There was nothing about them or their office that justified it like it does the Lord Jesus Christ. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. That's our king. The Bible describes a number of kingdoms. It describes the universal kingdom of God. I read it to you from First Chronicles 29. He's king over all. Israel was a kingdom synonymous with the Old Testament church. The Bible tells us that. That kingdom was taken away from Saul and given to David, a neighbor that was better than Saul. Yes, God says some men are better than other men. All, he, he, that's the whole Bible. See, this idea that all men are created equal is a joke in all respects. You say, that's just horrible. <laughs> Hello? Get in a scale. Let's see if you weigh the same as everyone else. Let's see if in the sight of God you're equal to everyone else. Here's what David would say about his nation and all men are created equal. He would say Israel has 12 tribes. He would say God chose one of them. That means he blew off the other 11, in case you can't understand Scripture. He blew off 11. He picked one, the tribe of Judah. Now, Judah was the largest of Israel's 12 tribes, and out of all the families that were in the tribe of Judah... He blew them all off except one. The household of Jesse. Now Jesse had eight sons. But of all the eight sons of Jesse, God blew them all off except one. Because David said as he went through that in one verse, just as I presented it to you, he liked me. You say, well, that isn't fair. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why did you make me to like me? Why did you make me not to like me? Because there's nothing likable about any of us if it wasn't for the grace of God. He liked me. All of that was because God took the kingdom away from Saul of Benjamin and gave it to David of Judah. When God regenerates us, he translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians 1.13, that is a vital transaction. Our hearts and our souls are bound up by the devil. We are held captive by him and his will. We are in the palace of the strong man, but the Lord Jesus Christ comes along and delivers us out of that palace, out of from following the prince of the power of the air by regenerating us. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first five verses or so, and raises us up together to sit together in heavenly places in a vital way. We have within us a righteous new nature that's going to be in heaven forever. That righteous new nature doesn't have to be changed a bit. It's already ready for heaven. It's our bodies that need to be changed to match it. And that's why we're waiting for our physical adoption that is the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's a spiritual kingdom. And I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. It's the Old Testament kingdom reformed. And it's called the time of reformation. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. Well, let's turn to the prophecy of Daniel. And this is the first prophecy in the book of Daniel, and it's found in the second chapter where Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, and Daniel explained that vision to him. Nebuchadnezzar saw a large image that was made of four different metals, and those four different metals represented the four great kingdoms of the earth, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. But that great image made of four metals representing four kingdoms had to face a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands. And that stone came and smote the image in its feet. But the stone smote the image so hard that it blew the entire image into the dust of the threshing floor, and it was carried away. And that stone continued to grow until it filled the whole earth. That's the fifth kingdom. I want to be part of that kingdom. Who cares about Nebuchadnezzar? Who cares about Xerxes or Cyrus the Persian? Who cares about Alexander the Great? He couldn't even make it to 35. He couldn't even take India. The turbans were too much for him. Who cares about the Roman Empire? I want to be part of that stone that filled heaven and earth. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Here's Daniel's explanation to King Nebuchadnezzar. And in the days of these kings, that's those four kings, seen as being incorporated into the Roman Empire, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever Praise the Lord. That's the kingdom that we're part of this morning. That is Daniel 2.44. Now we had to wait until Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3 because we had to get to Rome. The, The rest of the prophets in the Old Testament couldn't tell you the details about this kingdom because it was Persia reigning over the world or it was Greece reigning over the world. But then in 30 B.C., there was a serious naval battle battle at Actium where the Romans beat the final navy and army of the Greeks. 30 B.C. Now we have the Roman Empire in place. We have the feet made of iron and clay. It's about time, wouldn't you say, that something pops on the scene? Well, what kind of a man is the Lord going to send? Is he going to be on a white horse? Is he going to be seminary trained? Is he going to have gotten a law degree from Harvard? Or will a wild man burst on the scene named John the Dipper? Here comes John the Dipper. You've got to be kidding me. He's got a leather girdle on. He's snacking and munching and crunching on grasshoppers and honey. You say, that couldn't be the kingdom of a God, a heaven? Oh, Lord, if you would ever be so kind, just make me a little bit like the greatest man ever born of women. Make me a little bit like John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3. Do you know what the city of Babylon looked like? Two walls, hundreds of feet high, separated by barren land in between. Six chariots abreast could run on top. The Euphrates River running through the city. Endless supply of water. The hanging gardens of Babylon. They could eat. They could farm the land in between the two walls. It was an impregnable city. She said of herself, I sit a queen forever. She fell in one night. But she was one impressive city. The Greeks did conquer the known world in just a few years. One impressive army. No one ever had the wealth of Xerxes. No one ever put 10,000 ships in the Mediterranean Sea at one time and sent an army of 5 million men against Greece. And all that did was make Greece hate Persia so that Alexander the Great, from a little boy, hearing the stories, purposed in his devilish heart, with God's blessing, that he would destroy Persia. The Roman Empire put outposts in our Britain. These were great empires, but there's a greater one coming. It's not coming to us. It's not future to us. It was coming to them. And I, I described it to you. And you say you've taught us these things before. I want to tell you something about your kingdom duty. When your steward brings something old out of the treasury, you better give the same attention to it as when he brings something new out of it. Because you don't have the insight of a mole if you get frustrated with me bringing old things up. They are brought up for the encouragement, the provoking, and the conviction, and the instruction of all the souls in this assembly, not just yours. But they should affect yours as well. Because if you prepare your heart right, Matthew 13, 52 applies to me teaching you And you should be thankful for even old things. Right Right now, I'm trying to get your attention. Listen, if I wasn't to go any further than Daniel 2.44 the rest of this day, but you walked out of here loving the fact that you were part of that stone, cut out without hands that filled the entire earth, and you knew it was Christ's kingdom, we would have accomplished my purpose. Mm -hmm. Because my purpose is not all that high from a preaching standpoint, but it is high from a political standpoint it is the kingdom of Jesus Christ Amen. so we had to get to the feet this huge image the head of gold was the Babylonians the shoulders of silver were the Persians the belly of brass was the Greeks and the, the legs of iron was the Roman Empire but that stone so we had to get to Rome so in 30 BC we got Rome and then we open the pages of the New Testament and we come to chapter 3 Verse 1, in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He didn't go to the shining lights of Houston. He didn't rent himself a basketball stadium. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of the New Testament is called the kingdom of God, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. They are synonyms. Right. Sorry, C.I. Schofield, we don't give a rip about what you think on any subject. Right. right, He makes this great difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Can I show you one passage that you might want to remember? Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Matthew chapter 19. If you just want to remember something or you want to jot it down someplace... If you want to go back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2 where you have the words, the kingdom of heaven, then you can just put over there Matthew 19 verses 23 and 24, kingdom of heaven equals kingdom of God, if you make notes in your Bible. Matthew 19 verse 23, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Then for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. That good enough for you? Good enough for me. Now I'm going to tell you why it's called the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Because Daniel 2.44 said, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now if the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, can it legitimately be called the kingdom of God? If the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, can it legitimately be called the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) This is deep is not he revealed simple things to his simple citizens of Zion? Right. Thank you, Lord. Back to Matthew chapter 3. Thank you, Lord. Jesus came preaching the same thing. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 7. Oh, that isn't the right verse. Verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice the same message as John The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. Right then. What was associated with it? Baptizing. John the Baptist. Jesus goes to him and is baptized in this chapter, in the previous chapter. In this chapter, he's tempted by the devil. And as soon as... He is finished with his temptation with the devil. He enters upon his public ministry and preaches the same message. The stone cut out without hands, meaning it is not of human origin. It's of divine origin. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is upon the earth. Yes, it was small in its beginnings. Do you know what Jesus would say about that? What is the smallest of seeds? A mustard seed. But yet that seed, when it is planted, turns into a great bush. A great tree, a great plant, that all the birds of the air can come and make nests in it. A little bit of leaven is put into a large lump. But do you know what that little bit of leaven does? It infects and affects and corrupts and influences the whole lump to make bread. And Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to both of those examples because though it started small, it was going to get very large, just like the stone cut out without hands was going to fill the earth. We own this earth. This earth is ours. It's not Mother Earth. It's not the property of PETA. And it's not the property of the United States or the United Nations. It's ours. All things are ours. First Corinthians chapter 3, read the last few verses. All things are ours because we're the children of the living God. Oh, thank you, Lord. What a blessing. What an incredible blessing. Jesus and His kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 5. You want to be great in His kingdom? I can't preach the whole kingdom of God. Do you know how long it would take to do it right? Weeks and weeks and weeks. Matthew 5, 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. People ask us, why do you make such a big deal about such little things? Listen to their blasphemous words. Why do you make such a big deal about such little things? Because Jesus, the king of our kingdom, told us to, and we want to be great instead of least, like you. Right, right. That's why. So Take any aspect of our church or our worship. We don't do it because we like it. We do it because God loves it, and God orders it, and God has ordained it. There's a verse for you. That's the nature of the kingdom that we're part of. Look at Matthew chapter 7. God doesn't care about you talking the talk. You better walk the walk, or you're on your way to hell. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This is the rules of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't care about your profession of faith. He wants to see your actions. Amen. Calling upon the name of the Lord doesn't mean anything. Unless you back it up with works to prove it. This is, this is described in the 21st verse as those that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Enter into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is based on your walk, not your talk. Lord, help us to this end. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 11. Did you know that the whole New Testament is about the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Did a young man in our midst, I think his name is Daniel Jones, read Revelation chapter 1? Was it something about being in the, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? Was it something about meeting the king of that kingdom? He's described for us. Does it sound more impressive than a navy blue suit with a red and white striped tie? Earthly rulers have their place. We give unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, but we give unto God the things that belong to God. And that's why I'm giving him what I'm giving him today because he is God over all the earth and he is, Jesus Christ is prince of the kings of this earth and our president is no king. We believe in the separation of powers, which means we don't believe in any power. God never believed in such a ridiculous concept as the separation of powers. There's nothing godly about that. It's not even wise. God has used it. God has used it to give us great liberty. But God also ordained kings at various times to say, I want a Bible translated into the language of the people to get rid of all these other translations. And Congress didn't have to approve it and legislate it, nor did the judiciary have to say, we think we agree. Right. Matthew chapter 11. These are, this is a verse that so many find difficult to understand, but it shouldn't be. Verse 12, Matthew eleven twelve, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Notice what it says. Are we agreed on the kingdom that's at stake here? And from the days of John the Baptist, who got the kingdom started? The first man to let out of his mouth the words, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you read the New Testament enough to know that there are men by name that it says of them they were waiting for the kingdom of God? John brought it to pass. So you know what kingdoms under consideration here. From the days of John the Baptist until now, because we're in Matthew chapter 11 and John the Baptist was in chapter 3. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. You say, what does that mean? That means that to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to violently overthrow your life, your thoughts, your ideas, and change in order to get in. You say, well, it just doesn't look like that. It looks like... Somebody's destroying the kingdom of heaven. Because it says the violent take it by force. Okay, then let me read a cross-reference to you. It's Luke sixteen sixteen, And if you mark your Bible, you'll want Luke sixteen sixteen right here. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Ah, now I know it's getting into it that takes the violence. Luke 16:16 16, 16 tells us what this verse means. The violent take it by force. Do you know what you, Do you remember what we had read to us by Chris Carnell from Matthew chapter 21? If you fall on this stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be broken. That's doing violence to your life. You will break up, bust up your life in order to squeeze into the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Lord. It's not that difficult to understand. Look at Matthew 13 and verse 31. Matthew 13:31. O Lord, be with us. Hold our attention. Teach us about your kingdom. Excite us to kingdom service. Let there be praise in our mouths and a two-edged sword in our hands, according to the 149th Psalm. Acts, I mean, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31. Another parable put he forth to them. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. My point in quoting this, and now in reading it to you, is the initial size of the kingdom of heaven was very small, but it was going to grow to be very great. And we are in the latter stages of it, when the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, is coming back in flaming fire with His mighty angels to burn up this earth, recreate it and give it to us. Not because we're better than other men, but because God made us vessels of glory and honor to the praise of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we want to be faithful to Him in the meantime because He has told us when He went into a far country to occupy and to be faithful with the pounds that He's given us or the talents. And the word talents has nothing to do with your abilities. Never, ever, ever. Think about talent in the New Testament as having to do with your abilities. A talent in the Bible is a, is a monetary measure. It's like a dollar. Do I need to rewrite your Bibles to help you understand? It's pounds. It's British pounds in one place. It's Jewish talents in another place. Do you need American dollars to figure it out? God's given you some things. He's given us this church. He's given us this word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us our brethren. He's given us opportunities. He's given us stores of utterance for the gospel. Those are the talents. Right. It's a monetary measure. Are you getting a return on it for him? Because he's a Lord and he expects a return on all of his investments. Are you giving him a return? If you just hold on to what he gives you and you bury it in the ground, he is going to come and he's going to cast you out where there's going to be gnashing of teeth and he's going to take what he gave you and gave it to a man that's got ten. You say that's not fair for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poor. Do you know how politically incorrect you are today, preacher? Absolutely I do. Thanks be to God for correcting me from the political nonsense of this world. The rich should never give to the poor. Not in the economic scheme of the God of heaven. The man that has five talents, that's a monetary measure, he puts that out to usury and increases it to ten, and God blesses him. Have rule over ten cities. The man that has two, invests it and ends up with four. Have rule over four cities. The man that has one, that comes in and warms foam rubber, take from him the one that he's got and give it to a man that deserves it. Take the kingdom from King Saul and give it to someone I like. Give it to his neighbor who's better than him. Who are the best in this assembly? Who are the best in the sight of God? Who are those that love His King and His kingdom the most? Who will have His praise in their lips and a two-edged sword in their hand? Right. Look at Acts chapter 15. I know I should wind this down. You'd have to give me Valium right now. Acts 15 and verse 13. I preached this to you recently. I've referred to it already, but I have to put before your eyes the word of God. This is the great council at Jerusalem it is the only inspired church council there ever was. We had the apostles and the elders and the brethren of the church at Jerusalem coming together for a matter about what should Gentiles have to do from the law of Moses. And here's James bringing it to a close. And here's his summary conclusion inspired by the Holy Ghost. It says that if you read the whole chapter. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, Paul and Paul and Barnabas had held their peace because they had given the last testimony. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's the testimony of Cornelius being saved. And to this degree, the words of the prophets Now here's James under inspiration of God explaining the prophet Amos as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called saith the Lord who doeth all these things. And this is James' commentary. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning Of the world. Now because it says. In verse 16. After this I will return. That's future tense. Along come the futurists and say. See it's future tense. What grade would you give them in the third grade? Third grade grammar. Who's being quoted when it says. After this I will return. Is James saying those words from James perspective? No James quoting Amos. 400 B.C. After what? After the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, I will build again the kingdom of David with Gentiles. And James quotes the passage to prove the point that Paul and Barnabas, having gone out and seen all these conversions of the Gentiles, was the fulfillment of the book of Amos. They say that's their most important passage in the New Testament. Well, we just took it and stole it from them. And we just put it in our pocket after we shined it up. Because it's all ours. Amen. today, this is the tabernacle of David right here. Do you know who our king is? The son of David. In Jeremiah, he's just called David so that you don't have to waste the time writing, son of. He's just called David. They're waiting for some kingdom. Do you know what a kingdom is to them? He's going to come down and sit on a wooden throne in Jerusalem. He's going to rebuild altars and they're going to offer animal sacrifices. There's going to be wicked people all over this earth during the millennium. They're going to have three battles that he's just never going to be able to win. They're going to have the battle of Armageddon, and they're going to have this battle, and they're going to have that battle, and there's still wicked people all over the earth for some so-called thousand-year millennium. Do you know what they get the most excited about in their kingdom? They're going to take ark welders into the zoos and cut out the bars, and the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. That is how deep they get. You should see their Bible story books. There's a little lamb cuddling up to it and nursing off a lion. That's Isaiah 11. It doesn't have a single thing to do with lions or lambs. Right, right. There's lambs in this congregation. There's lions in this congregation. Why are they sitting in the same room? And if you watch carefully after this assembly, they're going to go nuzzle each other because they're going to hug each other. It's what the kingdom of God does to violent temperaments. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And what he does to peaceful and gentle temperaments. They get so excited about lions and lambs because their mind's in the zoo. Why don't they get it in the kingdom of heaven? I'm serious. Some of you don't know better because you haven't heard enough futuristic preaching in your life. Do you want to know what the kingdom's like? The kingdom of David is growing and growing and is going to crowd every nation off this earth. And he's going to destroy them all. And it's made up of Jews and Gentiles under the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just keeps growing. And it just keeps growing. And it's going to have a new heaven and a new earth. And everyone else, every enemy, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. That is where we are headed. Now, do you have praise in your mouth and a two-edged sword in your hand? Yet, we have our battles to fight. You know, is there a cable between your television and the wall? that you could take your two-edged sword to? Or is it your mouse on your computer? Where do you need to take your two-edged sword? Right. Where do you need to execute the judgment written? What judgment is written in the New Testament? Mortify. Therefore, the deeds of the flesh. Right. You have a sword to put some things to death right. for the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, you sound beside yourself. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment in light of 2 Corinthians 5. I am beside myself, but it's for God's glory. And I hope it's for your profit. There's so much more that could be said, should be said. Lord, help me to say it in the second assembly. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.